We're, we're jumping back into our series in Philippians uh, this morning. So we're going to be looking at uh, Philippians chapter 2. Um, basically, we're going to look at cha- chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, part 2. We did that some weeks ago before we kind of entered into the holiday season and had some of our special services. And so we're kind of going back into that. We mostly looked at this idea of Jesus willing to lay down equality with God. And the Philippians says it's something that he didn't consider it to be grasped, but rather uh, emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and becoming like us. And we talked a little bit about the implications of the power of that kind of identification. And so today I want to look at this passage one more time, even though we could probably look at it even obviously more than twice, because as we said last, uh, last time we looked at it, what we have here is a poem that essentially expands the, links, the length of the biography of Jesus. It's a poem about the, 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 the birth and the death and the accomplishment of the work of Jesus on our behalf. And so this morning, uh, we're going we're gonna to get just a little nerdy for just about three to five minutes, that's it, and then hopefully that'll be enough to indulge me. Um, One of the things that we repeat here consistently is, 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 is an understanding that the Bible is read from kind of three different perspectives. We read the Bible first as his story. It's about, it's the revelation of God to humanity. Then we recognize that we read it as their story, It's a story that takes place within a context, within a particular group of ancient people and historical people, and it it displays for us both their revelations and their journeys in in their relationship with God and understanding who he is and what it means to live a life of faithfulness. Um... So we read it as his story, their story, and then we take, the, and we take a moment to read it as our story. What, what, what is the Bible, what, what is his story and their story revealing about universal principles of what it means to walk with God in faithfulness? Because we understand that in the context of the scripture uh, limits some of the application because it's not always intended for all people at all time, but that doesn't mean that there's not some sort of principle or revelation of the heart of God that we can't extrapolate from those stories and ask, okay, what does that mean for the contemporary body of Christ? And then finally, we ask the fourth question and we read, as we read it as my story. His story, their story, our story, and my story. Holy Spirit, how are you calling me to respond to the truth that's revealed here in the scripture? And that order is very important because it empowers us to honor uh, audience relevancy uh, of, of the time in which the scriptures are written. But it also allows us to understand that you can't read every section of the Bible with the same rules of interpretation because the Bible is a book made up of multiple genres of literature. And so it is important that we take time to understand contextually what is the genre of the literature that we're reading so that we can uh, appropriately interpret what the author might have been communicating. Well, when we go to genre, then we also get to dive into literary techniques. And I know that's not everyone's cup of tea and we're not gonna diagram sentences this morning. Although I often diagram sentences in sermon prep, I'll admit, and I'm giddy whenever I do it. Um, but, uh, but, but, but one of the literary devices that you find in the scriptures is a poetic literary device called a chiasm. 
The chiasms are really fascinating. They're sprinkled all throughout the epistles, and I think there may be even some of them in some of the Hebrew scriptures as well. And, and I love it whenever, we come at, whenever I stumble across one because it's just fascinating to look at the pattern of the chiasm and why the, the author chose that literary device to emphasize what he was communicating. And so just a quick definition, a chiasm is a common literary device in biblical poetry that uses repetition to highlight the writer's main idea and to make comparisons and or to connect the main idea to other subtopics. And chiasms, again, if you're this sort of personality, they're kind of fascinating because they're actually written out quite symmetrically. And it is important to understand the symmetry of the, of the chiasm because it empowers us to interpret what the author is communicating. And what the author will do is they'll have an idea in the middle and then they'll, they'll have statements, two or three, that lead into the main idea and then statements after the main idea is state, stated, two or three statements that kind of flow out of, the, out of the main idea but are connected to what came before so that it enhances our insight into what's being communicated. And I'll show you a little bit of that symmetry in just a minute because I, 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 I could not uh, resist Put, uh, putting it in there for you. So you're going to notice when we read this text, there's going to be A, B, C, D, and then C2, B2, A2. And I just highlighted it there by the text so that you can kind of see how the chiasm works. But we'll read it together uh, as our text this morning, and, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it. So um, without further ado, uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. This introductory idea in verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Come. Now what the author is going to do is begin to talk about what, he's, what he means exactly and precisely by that attitude. Because when you say the attitude of Jesus, it could mean many things. Uh, uh, Jesus' personality was enormous. And so his attitude encompasses various uh, uh, expressions. And so, but what we see here is Paul's talking about a very specific expression of that attitude, and it's highlighted in this chiasm. Adopt the same attitude that is that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and we, when he had come as a man, he humbled himself, and here is the main point of the chiasm, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I'm going to go ahead and go back and look at that chiastic structure. But I looked at it this morning. Go ahead and pull up that next slide, if you will. Because I think that the software prevented Yeah. Um, uh, what's the next one? Go ahead and go to the next one. Okay, yeah, that's what I was afraid of. So the software did not allow us to format with the symmetry. So in this case, you have to have had your notes. So hopefully one of you have notes. Take a look at the way the chiasm structure works here. Uh, statement A is in verse six, and it essentially communicates that Jesus has glory because he is God. 
Then statement B in 7a emphasizes Jesus' service to others. Statement C in verses 7b through 8a emphasizes Jesus' humility, and then it reaches its crescendo in verse 8b, where it emphasizes Jesus' obedience to the point of death. From that, we come out of the chiasm, statement uh, C2, Jesus' exaltation, B2, all humanity bows to Jesus, and A2, Jesus gives glory to God. But do you see how this works? A, A and A2, A1 and A2, Jesus, is, Jesus glory as God, A2, Jesus gives glory to God. Um, statement B, Jesus' service to others, B2, all humanity bows to Jesus. Statement C, Jesus' humility, C2 is Jesus' exaltation. So he, he, he flows through this full expression of, of the totality of who Christ is and is hinged together with this idea that he became obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. The key idea in this poetic biography of Jesus is his choice to be obedient to the point of a humiliating death in service to others. I have to tell you, studying this passage, Philippians 2 is always a heart check for me. And it is always a little overwhelming to really meditate on this passage and think through how the Holy Spirit is calling me to repent and respond and apply this to my life. And in this one in particular, this idea of being called to live a life of death, really, I really lived with this idea this past week because it so much goes against the grain of what my flesh wants to choose to do. And herein is where I need my savior. I know there is a life in me that has already secured this victory. And I have got to learn to, learn to yield so that I might know what it's like to be a dead man walking. Because only dead men walking walk with Jesus. He didn't walk the way of dominance and power. He walked the way of service and humility even to the point of death. And so if I don't walk with Jesus as a dead man walking, I am simply reflecting some culturally identified expression of a Christian Jesus that may not necessarily be the res uh, 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 representative of the actual thing. Because the only way to understand Jesus, unfortunately, isn't just through prayer lines, theology books, and Bible studies. At the end of the day, all of that information will not make sense unless I am willing to respond with a lifestyle of allowing my ego to be brought to its death every single day so that I can walk with Jesus in the path that he's put before me because Jesus is still walking that path. And if I wanna walk with him, I have to walk it with him. Choosing to humbly serve even to the point of death, is the only way to truly experience and understand Jesus-centered spirituality. This is what it means to be conformed to the image of the Son. And Romans 8 tells us that God is kindly working all things in our life to this liberating end. That's God's promise. He's working, he's causing everything to work to your good to being conformed to the image of Christ, which means you get to die to 
your false identities that are less than in Christ. And so there is death and there is resurrection, and it is a consistent tension that is the reality of the life of the faithful follower of Jesus who's seeking to faithfully be conformed to the image of the Son. This, my friends, is what we mean by spiritual formation. That process of ego death and Christ in me life resurrected and the full manifestation of that through my soul, my thinking, and my actions so that I then become a redemptive force in the world rather than just adding to the noise and confusion and the pain. This is what we mean by the idea of spiritual formation. This, my friends, is gospel living. Remember, what am I my personal heroes of gospel proclamation, Jackie Pollinger. And I love the quote that she said, the principle of the gospel is this. It gives life to the receiver and death to the giver. The principle of the gospel is this. It gives life to the receiver and death to the giver which then causes both the giver and the receiver to experience a completely new dimension, which is called resurrection life, eternal life, which is knowing God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. So really, that's my sermon this morning. I figured that was heavy, enough, heavy of enough topic to not layer lots of other things, because now we need to spend a few minutes reasoning together, praying together, and thinking about what does this look like? How do we flesh this out? It kind of seems pessimistic, doesn't it? But it's because we are, are, our contemporary culture can only think of spirituality as a moment of affirmation and enlightenment. And indeed, it is affirmation and enlightenment, but that affirmation and enlightenment is to empower you to stare face to face to this toxic nature of your own ego and have the courage to allow it to die so that there is death to my toxic ego so that I can experience the life which is characterized by Christ in me, the hope of glory. And so let's investigate this theme through the teachings of Jesus for just a few seconds. My question to you this morning is this, have you learned to die well? Have you learned to die well? Or are you still engaged in the process of resisting it? Like I've told you before, one of the unique parts of this community is that now kind of second income pastors are becoming life coaches. And I get emails about it all the time, how to turn your ministry into life coaching opportunity business. And, um, but I don't think I'm gonna do that. I think there's a lot more value in becoming a death coach. So I am not a life coach, I am a death coach. Because I recognize the key to joy and resurrection life is learning how to live our lives in such a way that daily we are dying well. And it's extremely practical. I mean, I'll tell you right now, if you're here with marital tension, I promise you this, there is no problem in your marriage that your dying won't fix. There you go. Now please drop a $100 bill in the offering box on the way out. <laughs> but this is the heart of the message of Jesus. Have you learned to die well? And if not, what can you do about that? 
I'm not gonna necessarily detail a map and tell you that's a question you have to wrestle with. Get your little journal out or your little phone journal out this afternoon, carve out some time before the presence of the Holy Spirit and say, it's time for me to get with your program. How are you calling me to die? And how can I do it well? Learning to die well is at the heart of a Jesus-centered spiritual formation. And the reason why our dear family of evangelicalism is suffering the way that it is, is that we want to have the joy of knowing the resurrection life of Jesus while avoiding the cost of death. And it will never, ever work. Because if you go back to the teachings of Jesus, it's crystal clear. You gotta pass through death to enter life. And God is actively working in your life to move you into that death. The reason why it's such a struggle is we're actively resisting it. In fact, some of us have been schooled in spiritual warfare and we've been taught that all the movements of the spirit are used, using to bring us to our death, those are really the resistance of the enemy and you just gotta learn how to rebuke the devil because God surely doesn't want you to be uncomfortable or unhappy or to suffer. It's a red herring, it's a mistake, it's a false gospel and it robs us of participating in the truth because whatever is in, at the end of a spirituality that doesn't teach you how to die is something less than the resurrection life of your Lord Jesus Christ who conquered death. So let's look at this. Unfortunately for me, I've always been looking for the crisis event that would change my life. But learning to die well doesn't happen all at once. It's not for me anyway. Maybe part of that's because my spiritual gift is stubbornness. But it doesn't happen all at once. Learning to die well is a skill that must be cultivated one day at a time. Learning to die well is a skill that must be cultivated one day at a time. And often, it's one moment at a time. Because as you start to recognize the rhythm of the Spirit, as you seek to keep in step with the Spirit, you might discover that He may be inviting you into multiple deaths in a 24-hour period. Good for you. That's just all the more resurrection and joy that's on the other end. So what exactly is this death call, Artie? That doesn't sound like God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and everything's gonna be peachy and cherries from here on out if you'll just become a Christian. No, it doesn't. But it sounds an awful lot like Jesus. So let's just look at three examples. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. I've seen evangelists that literally make huge crosses that they're carrying around the world. Now look, I don't want to take away from the performance art of carrying a cross around the world. But if you look closely, most of them have wheels at the bottom of them, which is smart. And it's very representative of the way we tend to approach 
the tough calls of Jesus. Do what Jesus says, but put training wheels on it if you can. Makes it a whole lot easier. I mean, Jesus was Jesus. We don't want to go that far, right? Um, but we do this performance art with crosses. We put them up in our churches as decor, and we wear them made out of gold around our necks. More about that in a moment. Take up his cross and follow me. Mark 8, 34. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. But there it is again. Take up his cross and follow me. Luke 9, 23. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. And now we have that extra word. Take up his cross. How often? Daily. And follow me. This message is difficult for us because at the center of it is taking up a cross. But the cross is a symbol that we have sanitized. And in sanitizing it, we have missed the point of what a real faithful Jesus spirituality looks like. Now, it takes a lot of guts. I didn't realize this when I was younger. It takes a lot of guts to be a parent. It is an invitation to perpetual joy and eternal guilt. And uh, I have just come to be at peace with that. And I could give lots of examples of the points in which I fail. There was a moment of deep parental pride when I saw one of my daughters grasp a hold of something so profound as this. And one year, this is a theme that I've been wrestling with for years. So if you were part of the youth group, it was a different youth group. It wasn't how to be best friends with your best friend in three easy steps. It was okay, junior high and senior high, let's talk about how to die. And, and so we would go over these verses and we would talk about these verses. And after one series of lessons that we gave was my daughter's birthday and her friend, Kalina, who they're both back at the church now, ironically, made her, handmade her a present. And it was a necklace. It was a religious necklace. It was based on the theme of this verse. It was a chain and then a... Um, Trinket sounds belittling. What are these things that go on your charm? Thank you. Thank you very much. That's way more charming. Um, it was based on this verse, but the charm wasn't a cross. It was an electric chair. Now, that became quite a, controver that, that became quite a, a, a conversation piece for my daughter when she wore it. In fact, if I remember, it too often became a conversation piece and it kind of wore her out sometimes. Now, why did they do that? It's because that's what this is. This is an instrument of execution. It is not something cute that should have a fish wrapped around it to let everybody know that culturally you're involved in church. Put it on your bumper. It is an instrument of execution. And the reason why they made those necklaces is to remind themselves, this is not about a call of a sanitary, well-groomed and well-put-together, easy spirituality. 
at the heart of it is your invitation to death. So to say, take up your cross daily, if Jesus were speaking to this crowd, he would say, if any of you would be my disciple, he must crawl up on his electric chair every day and allow the ego to die so that you can then follow me. We have electric chair necklaces in the back on your way out. You may all wear them. What is it? It's a call to die. But why is it? Why? Death is what we want to avoid. We don't like to talk about death. I do tend to talk about death probably too much. It annoys the snot out of my family. You know, I just, you know, I'll be enjoying a nice dinner and I'll look up and say, isn't it amazing in 70 years, none of the people in this room will be here. And it really puts a damper on the evening sometimes. But I'm fascinated by it. I have learned that the contemplation of the day of my death has been one of the most profound tools of personal transformation I've ever employed. And so I do try to contemplate that on a regular basis. If you go in my office, you're likely to find skulls. It's a little sick, I know. I love skulls because I look at that skull and it tells me, Artie, this is your future. So between today and the day you look like that, which at first I'm a little happy because you're often a lot skinnier than I am now. But between that day and this day, I've got to live my life with wisdom because the days are limited. The opportunities to love are limited. The opportunities to forgive are limited. The opportunities to give my life away to the people that matter most are limited. These days are numbered. And so I contemplate this, but why? Well, there are two reasons why. First, in Philippians and then one in Hebrews. Philippians 3.10, which we're gonna look at in a few weeks, probably two or three. Paul writes this. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Artie, why are you speaking on the second Sunday of the year something that seems so heavy? Because it is the only thing that will save you. Because what Paul says here is this, we embrace our death to experience the power of resurrection life. That is why we embrace our death. Number two, Hebrews 12, one through, I don't think that's one through 22. It's just um, one through two. <laughs> Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy. Everyone say, for the joy. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Number one reason why we embrace our death is we embrace our death to experience the power of resurrection life. Number two, we 
endure the cross and embrace our death because joy is the fruit of self-denial. Joy is the fruit of self-denial. On the front end, you gotta take that by faith because it certainly doesn't seem like that's necessarily the path of joy. The joy is the fruit of self-denial. Now, I wanna take just 30 seconds to mention, just because I am striving to be as a responsible communicator as I can. I am talking about self-denial as opposed to self-indulgence. I am not talking about self-denial as opposed to self-care. Those are two very different things. And it's like, and with the church people, we get weird. It's like, anytime you say self, it has to be evil. No, there's a self to die, a self to deny, and a self to love. Jesus uses the word in all three contexts. This is just not a sermon about the self to love right now. Maybe we'll get to that, but I'm a death coach, so we're going this direction. Self-denial as opposed to self-indulgence. It leads to the experience of resurrection life and the fruit of joy. So if that's the what and the why, how do we do it? Well, this is where, unfortunately, it can get really practical. Look, if we're just talking about the actual day of your physical death, I know we all resist it, but we only have to do that once. This death that Jesus is talking about, you remember how he described it? How often does it happen? Daily, daily, daily. So how do we do it? And, and to be honest, like I read this stupid meme on some machismo website that I follow and almost unfollowed this morning. And it said, when a man tells a woman he'll do anything for her, he means wrestling a bear or killing a bad guy, not doing dishes. And it's funny, right? It is. I, I thought it was, I laughed out loud and then I pondered it. That really is how we think about it. The truth of the matter is, going to a martyr's death is romanticized in our mind. Making the big sacrifice, I honor the heroes on 9-11. I really believe we're in a room full of people that would have been doing something heroic on 9-11. And I'm not saying those are easy decisions. I'm just saying when we think about that, we kind of romanticize it. You know, dying, I used to love the thought of dying for the Lord. You know, I think, I think this is like the 30th anniversary of the death of um, Jim Elliott and Pete Fleming and his crew. Uh, man, I loved that story. I read his biography whenever I was young, and I was just so enamored with this idea of this glorious death for God. And, um, but the daily death isn't quite so romantic. It's really not quite as inspiring, the idea of dying on a daily basis. What does that require? Well, we've already read it. Philippians chapter two, verses three and four, just a little above our section here. Here's what he says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Choose others' good over your own the very next chance you get. 
that's how this works. If I died a martyr's death, maybe they would sing songs and write books and now make movies about it. But nobody cares or applauds me if I get up and choose to die to my ego and yield to the, desires of, to the desire of others around me. My friends, it is harder to do than taking a martyrdom missionary journey day in and day out to choose. I'm gonna to die to my interests and live for the interests of others. My friends, people rarely ever get around to doing this. Not even Christians, because the version of Christian spirituality that we give to people is way more palatable and is more about my own kind of being rocked to sleep as an infant in Jesus' arms. And I'm not saying that there's never an appropriate time for this. One of my favorite songs is Rich Mullen's songs, Hold Me Jesus, I'm shaken like a leaf. You've been king of my glory. Would you be my prince of peace? So I'm not belittling that. But what I am saying is, God wants to comfort us and heal us and empower us to grow up and go on to live mature lives of service to other people. And this is how it happens. And guess what? Especially if you're married or you're in a house where other people live, you've got all the battlefields you need. There are plenty of outlets with which you can plug in that electric chair, I assure you. And they're constantly coming before you. But here's the thing. We dichotomize spirituality and make it about church activities and Bible studies. But the spirituality of Jesus is enfleshed. When Jesus came into the world, it was amongst animal manure and bad smells. And this is where Jesus transforms our lives. It is not in the big decision that you were convinced to make by the evangelist with the good music playing. My folks, I hate to break this to you, that decision was easy. It's to get up and to be willing to be misunderstood, to have a moment where I have to process my feelings of neglect because I'm gonna prefer others' needs over mine. It's that challenge when I wake up every morning to not live my day like I'm the warm center of the universe. And you are all here either to contribute to my comfort or at least not create an obstacle to it. And I, st and I treat people that way. If I mindless, that, that is my default mode. But the call is to take a moment to lay down my life, to let my ego die, so that the power of the resurrected Christ can manifest through me, so that in my death, I am giving life. And when I give life, I also receive life. And this is a lifestyle of great joy, but we have to let go of our self-interest expectations in order to enter into it. They create a hindrance to that. Choose others good over your own. The very next chance you get, then try it again. And then be mindful of what's taking place around you and within you. This is a profound invitation to walk with Christ. To look around you and to say, I'm going to get up tomorrow. And I am not going to live for the pursuit of my own glory or my own good. I'm going to be in tune to the Holy Spirit so that I am ready to serve others in his name the moment he calls me to do so. And it might happen over the smallest things. I mean, think about the last arguments you got into. 
If we did a survey in this room, there would be a few of us that had profound, dramatic arguments that were heartbreaking. But most of us, it was just a multiplication of our annoyance. But we died on that hill and we slaughtered on that hill. I recall one night when I was wrestling with these ideas, the, my two death coaches were named Tim Lehman and Mike Wells. And this is so stupid, but for the first 10 years of our marriage, my insecurity was such that it absolutely infuriated me when Jen rearranged the dishwasher after I had filled it. Now, it messes up many fantasies. Number one, just the fact that I did the dishes, I thought meant she would treat me as though I just rolled in off a steed and wanted to just spend the night in gratitude and romance. But not only does that happen, then she goes and makes it a more efficient arrangement, which said to me, you're stupid and incompetent, but luckily I'm smarter than you and I know how to load a dishwasher. We would get in fights over this and sometimes that would last through the evening knocked down drag outs and I was blind to the fact that it was just my infantile ego throwing a temper tantrum. I really thought it was her problem, believe it or not. And I remember the moment, I just was tired because it was a repetitive argument. And I remember the moment, the night, our house on McClish, I loaded the dishwasher, she, and I heard it stirring in there. She was rearranging it. And I was getting ready to make my defense. And in the process, the Holy Spirit intercepted. And out of a miracle of God, I walked over and I told her, thank you. Death. Death. Two deaths. I'm not being praised and I'm being told I'm incompetent. But I thought, oh, resurrection life is, I'm going to follow Jesus and get my reward. So there will still be glory and romance at the end of this. The reply was, of course I had to because you haven't figured out how to do this yet. Death number two, and this one was bitter, real bitter. I started plotting my revenge and then I was just like, see, see, see Lord, this is why I don't do this. But the moment after that led to an evening of kindness, gentleness, in peace. And I remember laying in bed that night and thinking, this is what it means to give death and to get life back. That moment of death led to an evening of resurrection life, both for her and for me as well. Way better than the many nights when I chose to save my life and then release death into my marriage. That exchange is always happening. If I embrace life, if I save my life, death gets manifested. If I embrace my death, life gets manifested. Fortunately, there's not a third way. And fortunately, there's not a third way. So today, I promise you, within the next 60 seconds to 12 hours, you will have an opportunity to begin to put this in place. 
Some of you, maybe it just begins with deciding which restaurant to go to. Those can be knocked down drag outs too, right? What if you just spent the next three months not demanding your own way to where you guys go put food down your throat? Just see my, my, what might happen. What, what if you ask, I don't know, what would you rather do? And you give yourself to that, not, not in tolerating your partner's bliss, but actively entering into the celebration of it. This is a death that leads to a life. And the opportunities and the stakes just get bigger from here. Would you all stand with me, please? The worship team's gonna come up and then we're gonna, the prayer team will be available. Let's just take a moment here to create some space for some reflection. So would you close your eyes and if you feel comfortable, put your hand over your heart and just repeat this prayer however you desire, silently in your mind or whisper it. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Would you please show me where I am increasing resistance in my life because I'm refusing to lay down my ego and die. Whether that's in a friendship or the culture of my work environment or it's within my home or it's with the person who shares my bed. Where am I giving death because I want to keep my ego alive. Would you be so kind as to reveal that to my heart right now? My request, Lord, is that you would be merciful enough to grant me the gift of repentance. Allow me to follow my Lord into my ego's Gethsemane and say, not my will, but yours be done. Show me how to live for the good and the joy of those around me. 